Hello and welcome to Focus, the Catholic Answers podcast for living, understanding, and defending your Catholic faith. I am Cy Kellett, your host, and uh, delighted to get to talk with Joe Heschmeyer this time about actually quite an important subject that many people are quite unclear on. Where did the Eucharist come from? How did this uh, thing that we do now, the Mass, develop? Um, how how closely is it connected to Jesus? How much of it is innovation on the part of the early church and the later church? And is what we do now anything like what they did in the earliest days of Christianity? Joe Heschmeyer, of course, the author of The Early Church Was the Catholic Church, among many other books, and a very fine apologist here at Catholic Answers. Joe, welcome. Thanks. It's good to be here. Uh, first of all, this is we're recording this uh, two days after the Super Bowl, so congratulations on the Kansas City Chiefs winning the Super Bowl. Thank you. I'm still glowing and trying not to gloat. <laughs> You're not succeeding at all in the trying not to gloat department. <laughs> so I hear um, I've got a brother-in-law who's an Eagles fan, so it's oh, I think a pain, painful day for him. Well, all right. So the, the Eucharist, let me give you a, 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 a theory of the Eucharist, all right? All right. And and I think it's kind of um it just kind of floats around there in the in the zeitgeist, I suppose. A word that I don't actually know the definition of. And the and it, spirit of the age. Okay. <laughs> Geist is ghost. I was only kidding. I knew exactly what it meant. Spirit of the aged. Yeah, um, very very uh, close. Okay, so the I think a lot of people would say, you know, uh, it goes along with the general theory of the Jesus of history is a little bit lost to us, mm-hmm. which I think is what a lot of people think. Mm-hmm. Uh which is kind of weird because we have a lot of history of Jesus, <laughs> but but the, let's just start there. With the if you kind of accept that, well, the historical Jesus is sort of lost to us, then the Eucharist is um, a, a thing that developed over time. Uh, it was it, by the early church uh, and kind of got settled on hundreds of years in. The Catholic view would be what? Or maybe, I shouldn't even say the Catholic view, maybe I should say a more historically accurate view would be. Yeah, a more historically accurate view would be that that is incorrect. Okay. (laughs) That, you know, it's based on a lot of kind of stereotypes and myths about uh, early Christians. And so there's this idea, right, that the original Eucharist, whatever that was, was maybe just more commemoration, but then superstitious Christians turned it into something that felt more magical and felt more ritualistic. So either they were legalists or they were superstitious or for some, there's some kind of story about how you get from A, what Jesus did to B, which is what the Christians did. And that story is kind of being imposed on the historical evidence. It's not being drawn out of the historical evidence. You're you're not seeing that in the data. You're, You're not seeing that when you read the early Christians, they don't seem to be deviating from what they received. They seem to be almost fanatically devoted to passing on what was received. And, and you see this particularly with the Eucharist. Uh, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, I pass on what I received from the Lord. That there is this strong emphasis, not on deviation or innovation, but on keeping the tradition, on, on keeping what was uh, passed down and handed down. Now, that doesn't preclude something like, you know, having a new prayer or something like that added to kind of the order of the service. But the core structure, not just the Eucharistic sacrifice, but even the the movements of the Mass, where you have the readings and the homily and then the liturgy of the Eucharist, all of that stuff goes back as far as we can find. So uh, I, I suppose some of it, the, the question would come down to uh, the question of the divinity of Jesus. That I mean, if you really don't believe 
Jesus is the divine son. That's then, uh, then you wouldn't have a histor a view of what actually happened that could that would be much similar to the person who does believe that Jesus is the son of God. And I think for this reason that if you believe that Jesus is the son of God, then you know that the Eucharist is not accidental. It's not it's not tangential to what he was doing, but that he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly how to transmit it and he knew exactly how to and and the Holy Spirit uh, the power of the Holy Spirit can make sure that what he did is followed through on perfectly. Yeah. Whereas in contrast, if you don't believe Jesus is divine, you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, you're basically forced to believe that the earliest Christian witnesses are wrong or lying. and yeah. Or nuts. Right. Yeah. And treating any historical event that way. If you said, well, you know, the people who were at Gettysburg we're all delusional. We can't trust that yeah. any of the battle went down the way they said they did. Then history just falls apart. If you approach it with such an incredible skepticism of eyewitnesses, of the earliest recorded evidence, then you're left with nothing. And that's not just true of Christian history. That's true of all history. That the vast majority of history, we don't have a ton of physical evidence. Well, a lot of what we know, we know from the testimonial evidence. And so if you just decide out of hand that you're not going to accept that. You you aren't left with something else, and except your your imagination, I suppose. Okay, so uh, then from from a, 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 a perspective that's fairer to history, um, you you could kind of I, I suppose identify stages in the in the gift of the Eucharist being given. One of those stages would be the entire history of the Jewish people. Yes. And then there would be the life and preaching of Jesus, uh, distinct from the 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 passion of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So you have the you have the the entire Jewish history, the life and preaching of Jesus, the passion of Jesus, which to include the mm-hmm. first celebration of the Eucharist, and then the church. Okay. Yes. So if we, so it, we can even go back if you want a little further than that. Oh, tell me how. You can go back to Eden. So think about the whole story in Genesis 2. Okay. And there's different ways people understand in terms of how historically literal uh, that should be taken. But it's clearly referring to some kind of primordial event, some kind of early event at the beginning of the human story. And this is a story of this paradisal garden and then sin happening through a food that they eat from the fruit. and, And then this is where sin enters the world. Well, read in that light, a lot of what's happening in the New Testament, a lot of what's happening with Jesus's mission is the undoing uh, or the healing of the fall. And so you've got, you know, St. Paul refers to Christ as the new Adam or the last Adam. Um, He's born of a virgin, just as Eve was formed from the side of Adam. So you have these kind of miraculous births uh, in both cases. Uh, you have, uh, you know, the fruit of the tree, and then you have the fruit of Mary's womb. You have the tree of the cross and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You have the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's all these parallels. Well, read in that light, the fact that you eat the fruit in Eden actually has a parallel to eating the fruit of Mary's womb uh, in the Eucharist. Yeah, wow. And the, and I suppose the 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 tree that Jesus is hung upon there's a tree parallel as exactly. well that there's so, the tree of death that brings death and then the tree that brings life and saint paul says cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree showing that christ fulfills uh even the the wrath of the law so to speak the curse of the law 
uh, by the hanging on the tree. Now, he refers to the cross as a tree. And now, this has been sometimes misread, uh, for instance, by Jehovah's Witnesses to say, oh, it must not have been a real cross and it must have just been like a, a straight pole. But that's not what he's doing. He's, he's drawing you back to this Edenic imagery. Uh, and you see this in other places too. For instance, in John's gospel, he famously begins in the beginning, just as Genesis begins in, in the, the beginning. beginning right. But less famously, if you look at uh, the preaching of John the Baptist, it then says the next day, the next day, the next day, on the third day, and between John 1, about midway through to beginning of John 2. And if you track that, that gets you to day six of this new creation. And what happens on day six? You have the wedding feast of Cana. And so just as you have man and woman being created in, in Genesis, you have the wedding, uh, the restoration of the dignity of man and woman at the wedding feast of Cana, in, wow. which, in which Christ raises us to a sacrament. All that's to say the Eden and Christian parallels are, this is not just an incidental one-off thing. So if you understand that kind of parallel, then the fact that you eat the fruit is actually significant because it's how you commune in this case with sin and in the case of Christianity uh, with Christ. Okay, so then we move into to history as as given to us, uh, the history of the, the Hebrew people in the Hebrew scriptures. First of all, is there any history of any people that involve bread and wine so much? I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, true. it's a constant theme from Melchizedek mm-hmm. uh, through the Exodus with uh, the the and then the manna and uh, coming from heaven and all throughout you have bread images uh, uh, and frequently wine images as well. But you have this this imagery of bread all throughout Jewish history is in fact preparation for the Eucharist. It is. It also. So bread and wine, there are special prayers for in like in the Jewish prayers. There are special prayers just for bread, just for wine, uh, because they were so much staples of the Jewish diet for one. But also they were just seen as like divine sustenance. This is yeah. the way God cares for His people, and so it's an important kind of backdrop to understanding. Because you're right, Melchizedek is this mysterious figure. He's uh, the king of Salem, so the king of peace. And Abraham tithes to him, treats him as a superior, and Melchizedek blesses him. And he doesn't seem to have any genealogy. He seems to be this this very, again, mysterious figure. And the New Testament draws on that to present him as a sort of Christ figure. And so read in that light, the offering of bread and wine is really significant because the sacrificial bread and wine offering, the Eucharistic parallel there, I think is pretty clear. And, And there's a reason we refer to it in the Mass. And so read in that way, you, you do see this stuff all over the place. Um, even so, one of the objections people sometimes raise to the Eucharist is, well, although I see bread and wine everywhere, you don't see communion in blood. In fact, under the Mosaic law, uh, you weren't allowed to drink blood. You weren't allowed to even eat meat with the blood in it. And the reason is, is very explicitly laid out that this is communion, because it would be communion with the animal. In, yeah, the, in the way that the, the old law puts it is the life of the thing is in its blood. So to receive an animal's blood, symbolically at least, would be to commune with that animal's life. Yeah. And so it was forbidden because this is beneath you. It's beneath your dignity as a human being. All of that's true and explains in some part why people are so shocked when Jesus says that you have to drink his blood. Right. First in John 6. Yes, uh, yes. And then at the Last Supper. But if you understand that blood is communion, the same reason why you wouldn't want to commune with an animal is the reason you would want to commune 
with God. Yeah, right. Okay, so in the life and preaching of Jesus, then we again the it, it, uh, themes already developed uh, of bread and wine uh, through. I mean, ch- changing water into wine is his first uh, miracle. He, his constant re- reference to bread and the bread of life and and multiplying loaves and uh, again and again and again. Uh, he's preparing. Uh, at least he's setting a kind of um, ground uh, of images to so that the Eucharist can be uh, given its full meaning. Yeah. So I think one of the obvious places you see that, of course, is in John 6. Sure. And there, Jesus draws on a, a few of the other Jewish images we haven't even talked about yet. Uh, first, it's set at Passover time. And so you're already thinking of the Passover in which you kill the lamb and and you eat its flesh as a sacrificial offering. And this is a a clear Christian foreshadowing. 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul describes Jesus as our Passover lamb. Uh, And so, you know, the connections to Christ are already given to us in the New Testament. Well, Jesus presenting his Eucharistic teaching on Passover and saying that we have to eat his flesh uh, this is significant. It's striking. Um, and the other thing he connects it to is the manna because he just done the multiplication of the loaves and people then ask for more heavenly food. And this leads to a conversation of the manna, the Old Testament bread from heaven. And Jesus says he is the true bread from heaven. And so it's a twofold kind of drawing on Jewish history, both with the manna and with the Passover, and applying it to himself in a way that prefigures the following Passover, because one year after John 6 is the Last Supper. So it's this really important point where he's he's tying together these threads of the Old Testament, showing they have something to do with him, but the full meaning is still, to his listeners, I'm sure not clear. They're confused and scandalized by, by his words because he seems to be saying you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and they don't yet have the Eucharist to kind of make sense of how they can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned uh, St. Paul's reference to uh, the what we would call the Eucharistic prayer, I suppose. But the okay. So Paul's writing the first letter to the Corinthians, in which this appears, mm-hmm. uh, maybe three decades after Jesus, maybe less than three decades after uh, the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay. What he's doing there is giving a formula that every one of his readers will already recognize. So this is already a well-established practice. Yeah, it's interesting, the very formulaic kind of language. I don't mean that in a negative way. No, But I mean right. that in a way that, you know, if someone said, well, four score and seven years ago. Then you know what you're... Every, I, I know exactly. Right, right. Exactly. You, you, you recognize the language, you recognize kind of the pattern of the words, and you can apply that right away. Yeah. And so, you know, St. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11... Uh, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what's striking there? is that Paul is saying that he got this from Jesus. Yeah. Because he's not one of the 12. He right. wasn't around during Jesus's ministry. 
And so he appears to be saying, and there's some question about what he means here, he appears to be saying that he got this by special revelation. That, you know, he would have clearly known about the events of the Last Supper, but the, maybe the pattern and the form of the words is what he was given by Jesus, like a way to describe this event in this very formulaic sounding language. And you'll notice the same kind of verbiage wherever you look that Jesus uh, takes, he blesses, he breaks, and then he gives. You know, that kind of language is all over the place in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul's descriptions of the Last Supper, but also in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's description of the multiplication of the loaves. That language or language like it, you just find it all over the place. The other place you find it uh, is on the road to Emmaus in Luke's gospel. And I think this would actually be maybe a good place to kind of tie these things together because Jesus has the institution of the Eucharist. It's clearly important enough that Paul claims you've gotten a special revelation related to it. Yeah. And it's something that's very central. And he's using this language that, as I said, sounds very much like uh, the road to Emmaus. On the road to Emmaus, this is Luke 24, it's uh, on Easter Sunday, Jesus is walking with uh, two unknown disciples, Cleopas is one of them. This may be Jesus's uncle, there's some historical evidence, uh, Hegesippus in the second century, uh, and the other person walking with him is unnamed. They seem to live together, which has led to some speculation that it might be Cleopas's wife, which would be Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Um, in any case, he's walking with them and they're downcast because they had been following Jesus and now he's died and, and they're trying to make sense of all of this. And they say, well, some women of our company amazed us. They're at the tomb early in the morning, did not find his body. And they came back saying they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So they haven't seen the risen Jesus, but they've seen the empty tomb and they've seen this angelic message. And if this is, if this Cleopas is Clopas and, and his wife is Mary, she was actually one of the women who was there, which is why that's an interesting oh, kind of detail. Yeah. So he may be re recounting <laughs> without calling her out, like, well, my wife tells me. Yeah, I see, uh, yeah. Because right. it would explain how he already knows what the women at the tomb yeah. uh, were talking about. In any case, they're trying to make sense of this. And Jesus then begins with Moses and all the prophets and interprets to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. So he's he's got, if you will, the liturgy of the word as they're, as they're walking. He takes the Old Testament and he preaches on it. And they don't recognize him still. When they do recognize him, it's when they get to the second half. They arrive in Emmaus and they invite him in. And it says in verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. The same verbs again. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished out of their sight. And they then go back to Jerusalem and find the eleven. And they tell them what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And it's such strong, beautiful Eucharistic image. So you have the liturgy of the word. You've got Jesus opening the scriptures. You've got the liturgy of the Eucharist. They, they gather and then Jesus, uh, you know, consecrates the Eucharist. And then you have this dismissal. They're sent out proclaiming. Oh, right. Uh, what's, I what's didn't happened. notice this that kind part, of proclamation Joe. Very well said, yeah. That there is a dismissal. Uh, and I mean, even the word mass comes from the dismissal. Yeah. That this is something that you are, you are nourished so as to be sent. Yeah. And the, we find this kind of sending, that they realize what they have to do is go and proclaim this. And that's what they do. And they proclaim how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Well, what makes this even more obvious in some way is that the breaking of the bread is how Luke, who also writes Acts, 
describes the early Christian Eucharist. That's his phrase for it. So he is clearly wanting you to understand this as a Eucharistic kind of event. Sure, yeah. Um, and all that's to say, like, when we talk about the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, those words in that order are not in the Bible. True enough. But the things they're describing, that you have, you know, the readings and the preaching, and then you have the Eucharistic part, that's there. It's there in a pretty obvious way in the road to Emmaus. It's there in a different way at the Last Supper. And so, you know, that pattern, that form, that kind of rite, if you will, is there, including the very ritual sounding language of taking, blessing, breaking, and giving. And uh, so much so from right from the beginning that this is clearly Paul is using language, like you said, that everybody everybody who's a Christian would have recognized. So can we say of Jesus's um, life and passion then that it's all centered on the Eucharist, uh, the Eucharist and in its connection to the cross of Jesus, and, and that Jesus in forming a church, in preparing the apostles, um, was preparing to leave a church that was itself centered on the Eucharist. He he did all the things mm -hmm. himself. This is the, these are not things that other people invented, but he himself uh, prepared a church that could yes. do this, and 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 instructed the church in how to do it. Yeah, you know the the line in the Eucharistic liturgy where he says, "Do this in remembrance of me," is very controversial because people say, "Ah, remembrance." Yeah. And that's an interesting debate. There, it misses the whole context of memorial offerings. It, it takes remembrance in a modern kind of American context yeah. instead of a Jewish one. But what's missed there is the do this, that he's actually giving instructions to act in his name and in his person. And right. so when you see the priest at the altar, he's able to say, this is my body, this is my blood, in speaking in the words and in the person of Jesus Christ. He can't do that by his own strength. He can only do that by divine commission. And that divine commission is in two words. Do this. So the the um the earliest church then, let's just say even the church, you know, Paul probably undergoes his conversion, what, three, five, seven years after the Yeah, I mean, so all the dating is you know, I'm I'd yeah. be guessing. But, but somewhere in there. Right. Okay. So let's say even that what we might call the primordial church, although I don't think that that it's more like the embryonic than the primordial church because okay. uh, everything is there yes. in it. Um, so in those early years, the first decade, say, what do you think the church does? What do you, what do you think happens as far <laughs> well, as this? We're told in Acts 2, okay. verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so even in that very short list of the things they do, there's four things that were given by Luke. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Second, they devote themselves to fellowship. Third, to the breaking of the bread. And fourth, to prayer. And so the breaking of the bread is a significant enough event that it's separated out from other forms of prayer and other forms of fellowship. Okay. This is something unique and special in the life of the early church that deserves special mention. Um, that they are not just praying together, they're not just having fellowship together, they're actually offering the Eucharistic liturgy together. And do you have any clue what that liturgy looked like? Yeah, so we have some clue what that liturgy looks like, uh, both from the biblical evidence and from history. So one of the, I mean, no, we, we have to jump forward to get a really detailed description uh, to the 100s. You can find little descriptions. So for instance, the first century Didache, 
uh, has a little description of what the liturgy is like. And it's certainly consistent with the Mass. It even has like prayers that are said and, and all those things. Um, but Justin Martyr, writing and St. Justin Martyr writing in 160 in the first apology, goes into much greater depth where he just outlines. Because Justin is writing uh, in response to the Roman emperor, telling the emperor why he's wrong. This is how he got the title Justin Martyr instead of Justin who died quietly in his bed. Uh, <laughs> Which is in some ways the name he probably preferred. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so Justin has to explain the Eucharist and he does. So he, he goes a, a very – I'm going to give you just a, a little chunks of what he says. He, he gives a lot more. Uh, he says, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to, in one place – and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. I like that even then. He's like, you know, as long as people kind of stand it, you, you do the, <laughs> as many readings as you can get away with. Uh, yeah, right. I've got, a, I've got a quarter in the meter. This <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, after the readings comes the homily. So the presider verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. So you have the liturgy of the word. Yeah. And you have uh, preaching on it. You get the readings and the preaching. And then he says, we all rise together and pray. And then he goes into depth to talk about the different parts of the liturgy of the Eucharist. He even mentions the kiss of peace, the presentation of gifts, the Eucharistic prayers, the distribution of communion. So I'm just going to read one part here. He says, having ended the prayers, we salute one another with a kiss. There is then brought to the president, the presider, that is, of the brethren, bread and a cup of wine mixed with water. Now, even the notice, even the detail that there's water in the wine. Yeah, this has an important role in the mass that you you put a little bit of water in the wine to signify Jesus's humanity and divinity, mm -hmm. and also signify our participation in Christ. That, uh -huh. And is know, that related to the blood and water that flowed from his side it as, is well? as well? Okay, so it, you're right. It, it's very rich in imagery. There's there's a prayer you say while uh, this is done. Mm -hmm. So he mentions even the small detail: the cup of wine mixed with water. And he, the presider, taking them, gives praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and the Holy Ghost and offers thanks at considerable length for our being counted worthy to receive these things at his hands. And when he has concluded the prayers and thanksgiving, all people present express their assent by saying amen. And then he explains what the word amen means in Hebrew. So be it. And when the president has given thanks and all the people have expressed their assent to those who are called by us deacons, Give to each of those present to partake of the bread and wine mixed with water over which the thanksgiving was pronounced. And to those who are absent, they carry away a portion. Now, there's something, when you read that in English, you miss a, a little detail, which is that the uh, thanksgiving having been pronounced, this is where the, the, the word Eucharist means thanksgiving. So he's saying the Eucharitized bread and wine, in other words. And he even is very clear, because uh, he, he goes on to say, this food is called among us Eucharistia, uh, the Eucharist. And not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ, our Savior, having been made flesh by the word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise, we've been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. <sighs> so it's, it's all right there. That's 160. This is not some crazy later innovation. You see all the parts of the mass. Now, the particular prayers you might say Mm -hmm. may vary, not just from century to century, but even from day to day, right? Like you have different prayers you pray during Advent, during Lent, right. during Easter, during ordinary time. But the core structure of 
you've got the liturgy of the word and this is what it looks like. You've got the liturgy of the Eucharist and that's what it looks like. That core structure, it stayed the same for the entire history of the church. We we see it very clearly in Justin. We see it sort of uh, lived out in a certain way on the road to Emmaus. You see it lived out in a certain way at the Last Supper. It's, it's all there. And it's, it's finally, I just say, if you think about it this way, this idea that early Christianity was non-liturgical, non-ritualistic, is totally ahistorical. And if you want a single way to show that, consider the fact that the Eucharist is instituted at the Last Supper, which is Passover, which has a whole liturgy connected to it. Yeah. That there, you know, <laughs> the, yeah. the, many of the same evangelical Christians who uh, loathe the idea of Christian liturgy will celebrate like a Seder meal <laughs> uh, to... You know, yeah, to help restore right. the kind of Jewish liturgy. It's like, yeah, if yeah. only Jesus had taken the Seder and made a Christian version of that, like <laughs> right. he said he was going to do. Right. And it's like, oh, what would that look like? Well, it would probably be pretty liturgical, ritualistic, just like the Seder itself is, uh, but with a clear Christian dimension to it. Or something that both recalls what's happening in Judaism, but also fulfills it and points us in a, in a higher direction. It's it's an odd thing to have a, a Christianity that thinks that God spent fifteen hundred years preparing the Jewish people to receive the Messiah, and what He prepared for Himself was a completely liturgical people. Yes, and then the idea was the Messiah would come and destroy all of that. What was yeah, that, that makes no sense. No, it, it's true. There's this idea that basically Jesus made Judaism as hard as possible so people would want Christianity, and nobody says it that way. <laughs> But the idea is like, oh, well, he made it so legalistic, it was unlivable, so they would know they needed the gospel. It's like, that's a really weird plan. Yeah, right. It'd be like, you know, if I hate vegetables, which full disclosure, I kind of do, I wouldn't yeah. spend my entire life being a vegetable farmer and just be like, well, now I better throw these away because I hate these. Likewise, God's not going to spend thousands of years preparing people to offer him worship and sacrifice that he doesn't like. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. But it but it does fit with a different kind of story, which is that there's Christianity and within a hundred years, out of that Christianity, some people who just don't get it form the Catholic Church. Do you do you understand that I, theory of I, history? I do. I know that theory of history. The theory of history doesn't work very well. So <laughs> In my book, The Early Church Was the Catholic Church. <laughs> what, what is that about, by the way? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> You'll have to read it to find out. Okay. I don't want to give anything away. <laughs> All right. I'll say vaguely, it might be about the early church and whether or not they were the Catholic Church, and you can guess which side I come down on. Uh, but it's looking at Christians from the first 200 years, and they just, when you read the actual writings they have, they just sound like Catholics. Yeah. Right. You know, sometimes you'll find somebody who isn't a very clear writer and you don't know what they believe. Yeah. But the really good writers are just clearly Catholic. And nobody is just like clearly a Pentecostal or a Methodist or anything. Right. You know, you don't find that at all. You don't find someone who's just like, Catholics are clearly wrong. And so you'd imagine if if this was a true version of history, 100 years in, some poorly formed Christians formed the Catholic Church. Yeah. Or maybe some well-trained disciples who go rogue and embrace heresy formed the Catholic Church. You'd expect to find a lot of outcry. You'd expect to find people say... This is not what you received. And, and the fascinating thing is when this does happen, when Orthodox Christians become Gnostics, we find that outcry. So uh, St. Irenaeus of Lyon is trained by St. Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp, in turn, uh, was a disciple of the Apostle John's. Well, Polycarp has another student, Florian, I believe his name is, 
or Florinius, who uh, becomes a Gnostic. And Irenaeus writes him a letter that basically says, look, buddy, <laughs> we both learned Christianity from Polycarp and he didn't teach Gnosticism. So where are you getting this stuff? Right. And that's what you would expect to find. You'd find nothing like that where people say, hey, where's this Pope idea coming from? Where's transubstantiation right. coming from? No, those, those things are taken for granted. Those things are just assumed to be the case or are just explicitly mentioned as a universal belief of the church. And nobody says, that's not my belief. Yeah, <laughs> no, right. Nobody speaks Wait, out what are says, you talking about? Exactly. Where did that idea come from? <clears throat> yeah. And so the, you know, the example I like to give is, you know, if Bob Jones University decided to become Catholic tomorrow and just have like, you know, a high mass or something like that, and pledge their fealty to the Pope. If you pledge your fealty to the Pope, you can't have a high mass anymore. <laughs> oh, touche. <laughs> we won't, we won't, that's not this Sorry. episode. But, uh, you know, in that situation, I imagine there'd be a little bit of an outcry, right? Like I imagine some parents at Bob Jones would say, I don't want my kids going to that. And some students would have an outcry. And so the idea that in early Christianity, something like that happens... Yeah. And everybody's right. just like, ah, whatever. It's whatever, cool. yeah, we'll just I go guess, over. I guess let's go along with that now. we're doing this now. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I do want to, because you mentioned the word tra transubstantiation, mm -hmm. I want to uh, tackle that. The, um, I think a lot of people will say, you know, that medieval kind of, uh, all right, we've brought in this, uh, and I, I, I'm using the word medieval loosely, but, you know, this is the... the what so do they. So. Yeah. yeah, right. So uh, that, that medieval, um, we started using the Aristotelian language or whatnot, and, and this is totally disconnected from what the early church believed. Or there's the alternate, which is, look, St. Paul, just to use the guy we've been talking about, he didn't have the word transubstantiation. But if you had explained it to him, he would have said, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Which one do you favor? Like clearly the second one, because you see even, you know, that bit that I read earlier from St. Justin Martyr, he talks about our bodies being transmutated by the Eucharist. Yeah. Now, we haven't even talked about this dimension, but the early Christians are really emphatic that there's a connection between receiving the Eucharist and bodily resurrection. And yeah. they're getting this from Jesus in John 6, that if you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you will rise again at the last day. Uh, and they explain it by saying, basically, and, and I'm going to add my own language here, Gregory of Nyssa is one who I think is very clear on this. And actually in my upcoming book on the Eucharist, I talk about this as yet unnamed, but it might be named uh, the Eucharist is really Jesus. So what's that one going to be about? Well, you have these mysterious titles. <laughs> it's so hard to decipher. You know, I could have just been like uh, Eucharistia and then like, hey, you got to find out. <laughs> you got to find out. What does that word mean? <laughs> Probably still a little too easy. But uh, yeah, the, the idea is that Jesus turned bread and wine into his body and blood normally throughout his entire life through metabolism, which I think is a really cool point. Oh, that's because, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, think about it. Like, we just said earlier, <laughs> yeah. bread and wine are staples of the Jewish diet in the first century, so much so they have special prayers. Yeah. Jesus, the, the question is not, did Jesus turn bread and wine into his body? He, he did that all the time. The question <laughs> is, did he do it in a special way at the Last Supper? Oh, and, Joe, what a great point. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 well, I'm stealing it from Gregory. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because then it shows that the miracle is building upon nature and not against nature. Now, we could go really down a rabbit trail here. Let's not, because we we're so late, but give but, us the... Give yeah, us the... I'll just say the miracles of Jesus build upon nature. He turns water into wine. A grape turns water into wine. Yeah. The, a grape and a vintner. Yeah, but yeah. true. But it, it, it follows nature in a supernatural way. Yeah. As opposed to the devil trying to get Jesus to turn a stone into bread. <gasps> or yes. Or a fairy tale saying a stagecoach from a pumpkin. That those things are anti-natural. 
Jesus's oh. things are supernatural. The Eucharist is supernatural. It is doing supernaturally what is similar to something that happens in nature. Wow, Joe. Yeah, see, I had I, to include I, that at the end. That's not a rabbit hole. That's, that's I wonderful. I mean, I'm just, that could be an entire episode. Sure, it, it could. C.S. Lewis right. has an entire book called Miracles in which he explores this theme. Yeah. So then the kicker then is that when we receive the Eucharist, we are then metabolized into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10. Ah, right, right, right. We are one body because we partake of the one loaf. And that body lives forever. Exactly, which That's is why you, yes. this is tied to eternal life. That is transmutation, is the way that this is described by the early Christians. That's really similar to the language of transubstantiation, both in wording and what's trying to be expressed. That something at the level of reality has been transformed, even though the outward appearances of bread and wine remain the same. Joe Heschmeyer, what a great, great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, my I pleasure. really appreciate that. And we I, we took a lot of time, I mean, more than we usually do, but I, I just think it's so profitable to, to listen to all that and, and be reminded of it and be, and be uh, encouraged to have confidence in the Eucharist as, as given to us by Christ through the apostles, completely with, with complete fidelity, almost, you said, almost fanatical uh, yeah. fidelity, uh, so that we can have confidence in what we do today. Amen. Uh, thanks. Uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, thanks to all our listeners. We'd love it that you take the time to be with us. If you want to send us an email, send it to focus at catholic.com, focus at catholic.com. If you'd like to support us financially, uh, we do need that financial support, and you can do that by going to givecatholic.com. And as always, I will ask you for that five stars and a few nice words in your review. That helps to grow the podcast. And the podcast is growing. We're grateful for your help in doing that. I'm Cy Kelly, your host. We'll see you next time, God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Focus. <music>